This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Mr. Eric Weinberg, his recent work co-authored with Rutgers journalism professor Donna Shaw, Blood on Their Hands, How Greedy Companies' Inept Bureaucracy and Bad Science Killed Thousands of Hemophiliacs. Mr. Weinberg, welcome to the program. Thank you. Mr. Weinberg is the principal of the Weinberg Law Firm in New Brunswick, New Jersey. His bio is posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, developed in the 1960s and 70s, blood clotting medicines were proven to be a godsend for hemophiliacs having contributed to substantially extending their lifespan. However, between the late 1970s and mid-letter 1980s, over half of U.S. hemophiliacs were infected with the human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, having acquired the virus through the use of these plasma-based blood clotting mechanisms that carried the virus. As a result, tens of thousands of hemophiliacs died in the U.S. and thousands more throughout the world. Because it was well known these blood products could transmit disease, the question is why did neither the manufacturers choose to cleanse their clotting drugs and or why did the FDA permit these products to be sold? With me again to discuss this public health tragedy is Mr. Eric Weinberg. On background, I might add, uh, typically policy conversations can be fairly uh, impersonal and bloodless. I will say, for me, uh, this might be somewhat difficult. Uh, my family lost two friends having acquired HIV these blood products, one ironically a few months after being graduated from Rutgers Medical School. And I worked in the 1990s in an inpatient hospice unit where several of these patients were treated moreover, young African-American men. So uh, that a little bit lengthy uh, background. Uh, Mr. Weinberg, your book is moreover a personal account. Chapter 3 begins with you stating on June 21, 1991, Andrea Johnson and her daughter Jamie walked into my office. And then you went on to detail their experience and your work with them. So let me just ask to begin... How many HIV-infected hemophiliacs have you represented, and for how long? We were retained by about 150 families, and we represented them um, from the time that they retained us. Uh, Andrea was the first uh, uh, person to retain uh, my firm. That was in '91. And we resolved the claims by way of um, settlements or they participated in a class settlement or group settlement, I would say, by about uh, 2001. So it was about a total of 10 years. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me ask next, uh, you cite uh, the number of how many HIV-infected hemophiliacs received various settlement payments, but I was uncertain after reading the book how many uh, what's your best estimate of total number who are HIV-infected, uh, having received, in some cases, heartbreaking uh, uh, from their parents 
injecting their hemophiliac children with these blood products. Um, what's your estimate of total number in U.S., and if you have an estimate, worldwide? I would say in the U.S., uh, based on um, the settlements, so um, just so that it's clear, there were uh, about 6,000 um, either people with hemophilia or their survivors who participated in the settlement that was offered by the manufacturers of the products. In addition, there were a number of people who opted out who refused to participate in that settlement and proceeded independently. I, rec I represented several of those, and I would say there were probably about somewhere between 300 and 500 uh, people. I don't know exactly, because there were other, other folks who were represented by other lawyers. So in the U.S., in terms of numbers of people who were infected and received settlements, somewhere in the range of about 6,500. Uh, I don't have the numbers uh, worldwide in front of me, uh, but, but it was comparative to the... Uh, to the U.S. numbers in total. That is, if you added up all the people outside of the U.S., it probably was pretty close to the U.S. numbers. And you note in the book, to lend some perspective of how many, that in the later 60s, the median age of death for hemophiliac was late 30s by 79. It was, because of these products in part, uh, mean death was age 55. And then you note by the late 80s, uh, mean average or average death age was 40. So obviously this had a dramatic impact on this population. Let's go to, um, you uh, describe uh, throughout the book uh, how blood plasma products were obtained in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I, I thought that was somewhat possibly shocking. Uh, how was typically blood plasma uh, obtained at that time? It was uh, an essential part of the litigation. Uh, we determined to figure out the sources of the plasma. So uh, the way that plasma is obtained is a person goes to a plasma center. And uh, what differed about the people who contributed plasma as opposed to people who gave blood is that they were paid. Those who contributed plasma were paid. So the plasma came from paid donors. Mm -hmm. The uh, need for plasma uh, pre-existed the use, the development of clotting factor products. Um, but when um, the science evolved to allow what was called fractionation or pulling the enzyme, the clotting enzyme, out of human plasma, it led to the development of these products, which were very successful, very widely uh, sold. So where did it come from? Uh, plasma centers were located in prisons, uh, in a number of prisons, the largest of which was the Angola State Penitentiary in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, large quantities of plasma were purchased at those prisons and, and, uh, and sent to the manufacturers uh, where it was uh, um, put into big vats mixed up with the plasmas, I would say, 
10, 20, 50, 100,000 um, donors' plasmas were mixed together in these vats. Um, plasma centers were located in what we called Skid Row neighborhoods in American cities like Baltimore and Cleveland and Las Vegas and um, and so forth. Uh, and uh, a substantial quantity of plasma was collected at those places. Uh, there were plasma centers that were located in uh, places outside of the U.S., Haiti, Belize, um, and so forth. Uh, and again, the donors were paid. And so typically, the folks who showed up at these plasma centers uh, to sell their plasma were low-income or no-income people who needed the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the that was the uh, the source of the plasma that was used to make the uh, clotting factor. And I should say that because there was a use of plasma prior to the development of the clotting factor, when it was fractionated, that that is when it was when it was broken up into its separate enzymes, some of the plasma was used to make immunoglobulin products or hepatitis B uh, vaccine products or albumin products, but it was really mainly the hemophilia clotting factor products that were responsible for transmitting viruses because they were not sterilized until um, later in the game. Thank you. You note there are just a handful or a few major manufacturers of these blood clotting products. What did they know, and this gets into the, the legal battle here, what did they know prior to the outbreak of HIV about virus transmission via blood plasma products? Because you note over and again that it was unfortunately common for people to acquire hepatitis from using these products. Right. Uh, What was known uh, was that viruses are in blood, uh, and that was understood uh, long before uh, clotting factor was uh, was developed. Um, the emergence of what was called jaundice happened uh, during World War II with the use of albumin, and it resulted in the development of a method of sterilizing the albumin products basically by putting them in vials and putting the vials in baths that were heated to 60 degrees centigrade, I think it was 10 hours. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was an understanding that jaundice, which became known as hepatitis B, uh, was transmitted to people who received blood or and or blood products. What occurred and what was one of the basic premises of the litigation was that First of all, the uh, regulatory body, which was actually at the National Institutes of Health and then moved to the Bureau of Biologics, was concerned about hepatitis uh, in, the, in the 60s and expressed that concern in writing to mm-hmm. uh, Baxter, which was one of the major manufacturers of the product. And uh, Baxter's response was, you know, there's nothing we can do when these patients are already exposed. 
although it was very clear that young patients were not already exposed but were newly exposed. What also occurred, uh, and this was something that I did a lot of research on, I spent a lot of time in the early days of this involvement of representing these families doing research in the Rutgers uh, Medical School Library. Uh, and what occurred by the mid-70s, if not even a little bit earlier, was that it was clear there was another kind of hepatitis virus that was being transmitted to the patients, which later became known as hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. Initially, it was called non-A, non-A, non-B hepatitis. And uh, it became very clear then that a new kind of hepatitis was understood, was identified as being transmitted in these products. And that was a, an important part of the, uh, the claims that we made because it stood for the proposition that new viruses appear regularly. One of the scientists who I read uh, his work and, and, and quoted from his work uh, was a man named Sir McFarlane Burnett, uh, who wrote a book that was republished a few times, uh, in which he basically said that very point, that is, that new viruses appear regularly, and every year we'll see a new virus, and the issue of the new virus and its potential impact on the community, uh, you know, will not be the same all the time, but it can be a serious problem in certain circumstances. And that basically was the issue in this litigation, that mm -hmm. by the time HIV found its way into clotting factor products, uh, which was probably in the late 70s, there had already been calls in the medical community for sterilization of the products because of uh, other new viruses that had appeared. So to us, the argument was that HIV was simply another uh, virus that given the nature of the virus and how it uh, contaminated these large pools of clotting factor proteins that were mixed together in vats and then, you know, broken down and and powdered and put into vials and sold along with saline so that people could get a bunch of bottles of clotting factor and saline and mix them together and inject them. Uh, by the time that occurred, it was too late for the hemophilia community, and that's why so many people were infected with HIV. Uh, but the predicate was these other... The, the other part of the story that mm -hmm. had already had already emerged. So the argument being the manufacturer should have known that they should have cleansed via heat treatment uh, these products and or they had uh, a duty to warn uh, the consumer. The manufacturers you cite argue largely that these are approved by the federal government uh, so what's the problem? And then of course you argued or present what the FDA's behavior was here, and it was obviously not uh, your assessment of the FDA's behavior and other federal regulatory agencies is obviously not that um, complimentary. 
And also, you note uh, the role or role the National Hemophilia Foundation didn't play in helping to protect uh, hemophiliacs. Uh, much of your book uh, discusses the back and forth uh, in detail between uh, with your clients, the plaintiffs' legal teams, uh, the research you did, the travels around the world and throughout the U.S. to depose people. Um, sadly, we can't get into all those details. But by 1995, uh, this had all evolved. Um, and at that point, there's uh, the promise of a federal class action uh, in federal court in Chicago. But that failed. And actually, there's a noted jurist in all this. So I'll let you explain who was that and, and what happened with the class action suit. We, uh, so... First of all, just to take a step back, the methods of sterilizing these products was uh, using heat, but also there was a, another way of doing it, which was to use a detergent. Detergent, yes. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, when I say we, I had colleagues that worked with me um, in this litigation. We filed a number of cases in state court in New Jersey, um, but we also participated in an application to a committee of uh, federal senior federal judges under the Multi-District Litigation Act to have this matter um, uh, deemed an MDL, multi-district litigation, and assigned to a federal judge. Uh, that application was granted, and the matter was assigned to a judge named John uh, Grady, John F. Grady, who sat in uh, Chicago. Uh, judge Grady determined uh, that um, based on our motions and the issues that had been briefed to him, that this matter should be handled, at least in part, as a class action. It was a significant decision. The defendants, which included Baxter, Bayer, uh, Roan Polanc, and Green Cross uh, of Japan, uh, filed a petition, what was called a mandamus petition, uh, to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appellate court above the trial level uh, judges, uh, federal judges um, in Chicago and surrounding areas. And the case was assigned to the chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, a fellow named Posner, Richard Posner, who mm -hmm. was a very well-known, highly published judge. And the most cited jurist of the 20th century, actually, yes. Yeah, and he briefs were filed uh, by the defendants on their mandamus petition. Um, it was granted. Um, there was a filing. You know, we opposed it, but but the mandamus was granted, and then briefs were filed, and there was oral argument on the issues. Uh, we appeared in uh, his courtroom in Chicago and uh, argued the mandamus petition. Uh, courtroom was filled. It, it was a very compelling day. Uh, there were lawyers on both sides. There were representatives of the company. There were uh, many of our clients appeared. And uh, eventually, uh, and it, it was sort of predictable because of some of the comments that, in particular, that Judge Posner made during the arguments, uh, the mandamus uh, was granted, and uh, 
it was ordered that, and there were three federal judges, including Judge Posner, on a two-to-one vote, they ordered that the class be decertified, that this was not a case that should be handled as a class action, and uh, they ordered that it be um, uh, decertified. It was then heard um, by the full uh, Seventh Circuit. I think it was 12 judges. I forget the exact number. And they basically um, also on a mixed vote affirmed the decision of Judge Posner and his colleague. Uh, After that, there were discussions about whether to file a petition for certification with the United States Supreme Court or not do that and maintain the trial date. There was a trial date that Judge Grady had set up um, along the way, and it was a very controversial issue, and ultimately uh, the petition was filed, and the U.S. Supreme Court denied certification. So that was the end of the class. Mm -hmm. And you note that uh, uh, Judge Posner made this comparison to a flock of sheep swept off the deck of a ship, but we won't get into that. So about six months after that decision in 95, uh, you note uh, in July 95, the IOM's Committee to Study HIV Transmission Through Blood Products issued its report. And the way I read that, um, your account that the IOM uh, report uh, basically was watershed here, uh, what did the IOM report conclude? They concluded that there were uh, basically failures in the way that the product was made and that there was a technology that existed that could have been developed and implemented before HIV got into the blood products, uh, the clotting factor products, which would have prevented this uh, basically epidemic of HIV infection in the hemophilia community. It was a compelling analysis. It became very helpful in the litigation. Um, you know, for example, one of the difficult issues for all plaintiffs was the statute of limitations. Mm-hmm. So every state has a statute of limitation that gives people a certain period of time within which they can bring a claim, a civil claim for damages. Uh, there are also statutes of limitation in the criminal side. And uh, we had here in New Jersey and also in New York, so I represented individual clients in New Jersey and in New York, we had taken on the opportunity to have a bill um, passed through the Senate and assemblies and signed by the governor. In New Jersey, it was Governor Christie uh, Christy Todd Whitman in New York, it was uh, Governor George Pataki, that would extend the statute of limitations. And it was it was a tough fight. And the community was very much supportive of this uh, position. People with hemophilia, their family members, their survivors, the parents, the children, showed up in Trenton um, and in, in Albany to... Uh, basically argue for the merits. And in New Jersey, it was a difficult battle, but the the culmination was a successful um, passage of the uh, statute of limitations 
uh, of an extension of the statute of limitation, which was signed into law by by Governor uh, Whitman, and the publication date of the Institute of Medicine report was deemed the benchmark. In other words, the statute of limitations is based on the fact that there's an injury, that there's reason to believe that it was caused by a certain person or party or company, um, and that there was some negligence or failure involved. And what what Governor Whitman deemed appropriate was to give people a year from the day that the IOM issued its uh, book, its report, to bring lawsuits, that that was when people understood that, yes, indeed, there was a failure, and it was a preventable failure. So it was a very um, significant uh, finding, determination by the Institute of Medicine that ultimately, um, you know, benefited many individuals who had claims that may otherwise have been barred by statutes of limitation. Mm -hmm. And you say uh, in the book that there was not much uh, expected from uh, the IOM committee study, pleasantly surprised. Less than a year after that, uh, maybe not surprising uh, per what the IOM said, there was a settlement. Uh, what, what were the terms of the settlement? Ultimately, the terms of the settlement were that every person who was infected, that person survivors if he or she had passed away. Most of the victims were men. Uh, there were some women, uh, in fact, Earlier, we talked about Andrea, and she was the widow of a man named Clyde Johnson who had hemophilia, and she had become infected uh, with HIV. But most of the most of the infected folks were were men, were, mm-hmm. were boys or infants. Uh, received one hundred thousand uh, dollars net. There were actions taken to basically satisfy insurers, private insurers, and public insurers, Medicaid, Medicare, that they would be reimbursed to a certain extent for the expenses they incurred. So the guarantee was a hundred grand. Um, and that, that was the deal that was ultimately negotiated and accepted by, you know, about 6,000 mm-hmm. victims. And just to note, a few years later, the Congress passed the Ricky Ray Hemophilia Relief Act, and that provided some additional money. Um, while there was uh, civil settlement and monies uh, paid or transferred, um, my question is the was justice served question. The Justice Department, you know, chose not to prosecute anyone, uh, resulting, as you say, no one in the U.S. nor in Canada uh, going to prison. Overseas, the French, actually, you noted, um, criminally prosecuted and found two government officials guilty. Uh, The Japanese uh, actually had their executives involved um, prostrate themselves or apologize. Um, But back to uh, the U.S., what's what's your sense? In reading through this, you're waiting for the Justice Department to weigh in. They never do. What's your sense as to why there was never any uh, criminal charges brought? I don't know. I really, uh, I, I, I can't really comment on that because I don't know the answer. Okay, fair enough. Uh, my other question, begging interpretation, is 
This happened, of course, all during the, uh, this was through the early 80s, mid-80s. This was under, obviously, the presidency of Ronald Reagan. I'm sure you well the president did not say a word about uh, HIV AIDS for five years and not address this public health crisis for two more or seven. Uh, you make no mention of the president at the time. Did you consider or do you believe that the presidency, the White House, had a role in all this? I don't think the presidency or the White House had a role in what occurred. Uh, it was bothersome that uh, uh, it, it was bothersome that there was no uh, input, that there was no position taken. It would have been helpful, I believe. Uh, there were reports done. There was a 1998 report. There was, and this is mentioned in the book. You know, there were some government studies, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, you know, it's hard to go back and to say now, all these years later, that there were uh, intentional sort of uh, uh, ignoring of the events that occurred and the problems and so forth. Um, but it was bothersome because the story was a compelling story, and uh, the Institute of Medicine, which is a non-political entity, um, found in in a very compelling way, uh, basically uh, consistent with the arguments that we had developed in representing these people. So there was an opportunity for others to uh, speak to these issues before and after the IOM. What can you do? It didn't. It it, it happened, but only in limited ways. Mm -hmm. and that's the way sometimes life goes. And they, you quote them, one of their comments, quote-unquote, a failure of leadership. I, uh, the Canadians did launch criminal investigation called, you know, Project Oleander. Of course, that also did not, well, that did not ultimately succeed. Per my first question about this being hard to think about in, in just legal or technical terms, medical terms, let me um, read for, uh, from the book just uh, a paragraph at page 139. I found this particularly sad, to say the least. You mentioned a gentleman throughout the book, a Joe Selgado. Uh, at one point, he comes to you, you write, uh, and now, Eric, he states, you've screwed everything up for me. I always believed in having hemophilia was pretty much like the company said, an act of God in my life. I've been able to sustain myself in the worst of times through prayer. I've never let it defeat me when I was diagnosed with hepatitis. I knew it was God's will. Then they told me I was HIV positive. I believed that my faith would get me through it. Then you, Eric, started digging, and every time you told me that you what you had found, it shook me more deeply. I never let you let on to you what kind of impact... Uh, you were making on me, and now I don't think being infected with HIV was an act of God at all. I think it was an act of man. I mean, this this had to be thoroughly heart-rendering. My question is, how did you professionally get through this? <laughs> well, first of all, as you know, Joe Salgado is not his real name. I, right, I, right, right. And it's, it's something that, you know, I have a lot of respect for him and his family, uh, uh, he was just a good friend, you know, and we had worked together. He was my mentor uh, in my first job as an assistant <clears throat> prosecutor in Somerset County, uh, 
we had remained friends uh, even after we both left that office. And he's the person who referred Andrea Johnson to me. I had a sense that he was uh, a person with hemophilia, and I had a sense that he probably was a victim of the product uh, by way of infection, but until we met, and we met because he called me, and he wanted to meet, and we had lunch at a restaurant halfway between our offices. Um, I didn't know for certain. And yes, it was a heart-rendering um, time for me, but... Um, you know, life uh, is uh, life's a wonderful thing, but dealing with heartache and difficulty is part of everyone's life. And I was just determined more than ever to get to the answers and to get to a recovery. And I did take on his uh, representation, um, and I was honored to do it. And ultimately, you know, we were able to resolve his claim for his family and him um, in a satisfactory way. So it was a very difficult but rewarding experience for me personally. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Mr. Weinberg, we're at our uh, time. I want to say genuinely uh, thank you for your time in discussing uh, your work. I hope... It's widely uh, read and reviewed, um, so let me just say again, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity, David. Appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.